So in the section that we've got, chapter 3, verses uh, 7 to 19, uh, Jesus is in two different places. He's by the sea. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And then he is up a mountain. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountain. And it, in a way, it's sort of between two pieces of drama. Um, let's see what it says. The first section reflects on his very wide popularity. So Jesus, as he's seen and met by loads of people with loads of different thoughts in their minds and loads of different attitudes to him. And the second section is Jesus as he relates to this very small nucleus, 12 men, a small nucleus of the new Jesus community. So we have sort of two, Jesus as he relates to two different sorts of people. And those groupings are going to become clearer or more distinct as the time goes on. You know, positions are going to harden and so on. But bear in mind the sort of the insiders and the outsiders that Jesus is speaking to. Let's remind ourselves of the context, because we're not just dipping into this from the middle of nowhere. We followed through in Mark's gospel. Uh, right at the beginning, an agenda is set, and it's a very, it's a very ambitious agenda. Right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice, the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is Jesus who uh, baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the Jesus who, that's in chapter one, verse eight, the Jesus who comes to bring the return from exile, to bring the people back home, and to give them new hearts so that uh, a radical new thing is being done in the people of God. And this uh, new thing, please forgive my scratchy writing, the, the new thing begins to be unfolded to us in verse 15, chapter 1. Uh, we're told the kingdom of God is near. So the kingdom that had pretty much been extinguished is now drawing near uh, with a new king. And this kingdom is a kingdom in which sins can be forgiven. Chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is what Jesus does. He can forgive sins. And for people who are looking for that, that's amazing. Uh, for the Pharisees, this was rather disgusting because they felt that people ought to work their way to heaven and it couldn't possibly be as easy as this chap just saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, it's a kingdom of grace when Jesus calls tax collectors and sinners and eats with them and that's pretty disgusting to the Pharisees too. There's a new thing with this, I think, almost completely new character uh, coming on the scene, the bridegroom, the one who comes to seek his bride. To uh, She's pretty obnoxious when he finds her, but he wins her and woos her and makes her a spotless bride without spot or blemish or wrinkle or anything like that, a wonderful, radiant bride. 
And that seems to me to be a totally new thing, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, a time will come, speaking Jesus of the bridegroom. And we have this about the wine and the wineskins and the explosive tension between, uh, or potentially explosive tension between all the Moses stuff and what Jesus comes to do. And we also saw Jesus had huge popularity, chapter 1, verse 45, uh, to do with his healings. And yet this in itself was a bit of a problem because people came just for the healings. And this hampered Jesus. 1, verse 45, this guy went out and told everybody about it when Jesus had said to him, don't you dare tell anybody what I've done for you. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but had to stay outside in lonely places. And in chapter 2, verse 2, they're in the, in the house there, but people can't get to Jesus because there's such a crush. So the popularity has a, a downside to it. And you remember Jesus praying uh, in, the, in the first onrush of that popularity, no, I need to go somewhere else because it, I need to preach and I'm hampered from doing so, you remember all that. And in chapter three, verse six, we saw that the new thing that Jesus did became so much at variance with what the establishment was, what the establishment had made of God's revelation in the Old Testament that they decided that he needed to die. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians of all people how they might kill Jesus. So that's the context. And so let's go to the seaside and see what's happening here. So verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. So that word to withdraw is a rather unusual word. And it seems in this case to indicate like a, a strategic, a tactical withdrawal. It was getting so intense uh, in the synagogue there, it was getting so hot and dangerous that Jesus says, well, we'll just go somewhere quiet. So he retreats. And what is he retreating from? Well, it makes you think, doesn't it? Is he retreating from a confrontation? He's not going to retreat from a confrontation forever, but he's going to pick the time when that's what he wants to be doing. And at the moment, he's got other things on his agenda than just being there and in the, in the center of a storm, uh, a potentially lethal storm. It's one of the interesting things about Jesus, the, the pace at which he does his ministry. This is not the time for a confrontation, so he withdraws with his disciples to the lake. And what we find is this large crowd. Notice there are two words there. So we're in verse seven, a large crowd from Galilee followed. So the word crowd would do it, wouldn't it? A crowd from Galilee followed. That would say there's a lot of people. But Mark puts in the second word, a large crowd crowd from Galilee followed. And in order to, to emphasize the point, he gives us a list of all the places that they've come from. 
So from Judea, so that's the southern area. From Jerusalem, that's the headquarters of the southern area. So presumably some of the learned people from Jerusalem. From Idumea, I think the only place that this time, the only time that, that this place is ever mentioned, it seems to be south of the south border, and like Samaria was a pretty dodgy area in the north, Idumea is not far behind uh, in being, um, you know, not respectable Jewish territory. Do you remember that Herod was from Idumea, wasn't he? And they didn't, um, they didn't respect him for that, uh, for that reason. So we've got Idumea and the regions beyond the Jordan, so go the other side of the river. And we've got Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon were pretty uh, pagan areas up in the north on the coast. So Jesus has got followers of all sorts, from all sorts of areas. I mean, Galilee's mentioned first, that's the northern area where, where he was based. But there's a huge number of people there, aren't there? Uh, so in, in order to, for you to understand that, I've drawn a picture of it. There's a, and notice some of the little features that he says. Uh, they, many people come to him, verse 8. And because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. So it sounds like something he used to do in those days. It sounds like he, he hired a boat or got them to hire a boat you know, for the next couple of weeks. So you know, make sure the boat's ready. It's a little boat. Mark likes to make things into little something, so this is a little boat. Uh, but it's always ready. We're going to need that boat again today. Uh, I'm going out uh, preaching. We'll probably need the boat this afternoon. He... Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. And the crowding word is quite a strong word uh, to keep the people from crushing him. It's a word which can be used to mean trouble. You know, we endured great pressure, great crowding. We were squashed in our... Uh, in our emotions but here just notice what it said because it's only a short sentence but it, it, it says quite a bit doesn't it so the boat was ready because people were tending to squash Jesus people were tending to, to, to crush him you know like, uh, like the Hillsborough disaster you know, so many people not really caring where they're going not under any sort of control they've come to hear Jesus but you know as like as not they'd squash him if uh, oh he's over there everybody moves that way you see what I mean? Uh, the book that I looked it up in said it's what you do to grapes. You squash them, you crush them. And Jesus said, I don't want to be squashed like a grape. And the sensible thing to do is to go and hire this boat, make sure we've got the boat ready. Uh, and again, the verse 10, the, the thing that has attracted people is his healing of diseases. He had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And the pushing forward 
has got a, a word in it which means something like falling over. So you could say they were falling over themselves to touch Jesus. Can you get the picture of this? It, you know, you think of a football crowd, you think of a, uh, all the crush at a railway station or something like that, and that's what it's like. It's just, you know, crazy. Uh, the people are, are falling over themselves. Look out, look out, hang on. <laughs> They're falling over themselves to do what? Well, to touch Jesus. Did Jesus want them to touch him? I don't think that was the main point of him being there. I think he wanted them to listen to him. But they're, they're just so um, taken up with the, I wouldn't say the frenzy of it, but the enthusiasm of it, that they're pressing forward, falling over themselves, squashing everybody uh, and t in order to touch Jesus. And this is the sort of ministry that Jesus had in those days in this bit of the gospel. And there are other things that were going on. The unclean spirits, verse 11. The unclean spirits, when they saw him, they fell down as well. At least a couple of falling downs going, people falling over themselves and the evil spirits falling down before him, falling down, as it were, in worship before him. And they are shouting out, croaking out, you are the son of God. That's what used to happen. And Jesus, all the time, is giving strict orders. So there's another word for many or much. He's much rebuking them. Not to reveal who he is. That rebuking word, what does it say in the NIV? He gave strict orders. Uh, he much rebuked them. And that rebuking word is the same word as in 4.39, which is what he does to the wind and the waves. He rebukes the wind and waves. So it's a sort of authoritative telling. And it's the same word as in 8.30, which is what Peter, if I'm correct, um, oh, is it? No, it's Jesus again. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Peter, Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them, rebuked them strongly. Don't tell anybody this. So it's an interesting phase of Jesus' ministry, isn't it? Uh, that little summary just think of what it's saying. The great popularity that Jesus had with ordinary people. Loads of people took time off work. Loads of people brought the kids with them. Loads of people uh, um, went to visit auntie so-and-so in that region so that they could spend the next few days listening to Jesus. His great popularity with ordinary people. Certainly not popular with everybody, but there is a popularity here. And I think his patience with people. Because if you just read it through, you think, well, wouldn't that be marvelous? But I wonder whether, in a sense, Jesus found it rather a, um, well, what shall I say? Well, I'll tell you what I was thinking. Um, he's, I think he's very patient with these people because actually they're a bit of a liability. Because, do you remember, that they're so 
as a crowd, they're so unaware and insensitive that they were likely to crush him. You know, Jesus is, excuse me, excuse me, just go back a bit. You know, they, that, they're, they're not really very respectful, are they? They're pushing and crowding and falling over themselves, not really listening. They're a bit of a liability, and I've put this colloquially, I think spiritually they were rather thick, like we are often. They weren't attuned to the fine points of what Jesus was teaching. They just wanted to push and shove and get as close to him as possible because if you touched him, that would do, that would do the trick. They're not really very discerning. I mean, this whole touching thing. I know that, there is a, that there's the woman who wants to touch him, and that's a touch of faith. But you remember that lots of other people were pushing around Jesus at the same time, and theirs wasn't a touch of faith. So I think this shows Jesus with this wide group of people being extraordinarily patient with people who didn't really see what he was getting at. They, they were there for sort of the wrong reasons. And week by week, you know, how long have we hired that boat for? Oh, another couple of weeks. That's pro no problem. Week by week, Jesus is teaching patiently these people. So I think it shows Jesus' remarkable patience. And all the time, there is this constant threat. And the threat is of his messiahship being leaked in such a way that the authorities get, get hold of it and it brings him personally into danger. And all the time, he's, no, don't, don't tell what's just happened. And no, and before you go, don't you tell what's happened either. He's always having to be on his guard. And what he's really um, moving towards is taking time to prepare and to teach and to train. And before, well, that's the sort of picture the passage is giving us, and uh, in what reflection I was able to do on it, it, it struck me that this is a very patient saviour. There's a, a verse in Romans where God himself is quoted as saying this, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Romans chapter 10, verse 21. I think Jesus is doing that. And I think for us, if we may, it reminds us of the value of being patient and persistent and forbearing with people around us who perhaps are so, you know, they really don't get what we're trying to do. They always ask the wrong questions. They still haven't got the right handle on, on the gospel. And it's so tempting to say, you know, that's the last time I try and have a Bible study with that person. They've canceled again and again. I could have been doing something else. And to give up and say, you know, just, you know, that's the last straw. And it's remarkable. I mean, Jesus doesn't always keep on with these people, but he does for a long time. And I think this reminds us of the value of patience and persistence and forbearance. Sometimes it's justified to say that's the last straw. But actually, I don't find Jesus saying that even at the end. 
I don't find Jesus sort of losing his rag at the end and saying, well, right, you know, that's it, you lot, you just, you know, for three years, I've fed up with you. He doesn't say that. Even at, right at the end, he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's remarkable, isn't it? And uh, so I think we could take that thought uh, in witness, perhaps the members of our family, in persistence, in, in evangelism, don't give up. Don't lose your rag. Don't become impatient. So that's the first uh, section. And uh, let's move on to the second section. Let's go up the mountain. Now the mountain in itself is interesting because mountains are special places in the Bible. Uh, a great leader before went up a mountain. He didn't do this, though. He went up a mountain. He came down with Ten Commandments. That particular button isn't particularly pressed, but there's a, that's a little echo in our minds that here we've got somebody who is uh, in some ways comparable with Moses, and we would, we would say from other places he's greater than Moses, but he goes up on a mountainside, and it says he called to him, this is verse 13, those he desired, those he wanted. Jesus is very much in charge in this section. He calls, he, he decides, and they come. So he, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he calls them. And verse 14, he appointed 12, designating them apostles. So the appointing is just the word made. He made them apostle. Uh, he made them, sorry. He made the 12. He, he, he made a group of 12 people. And there is also a thing about naming. Excuse me, I'm going to clear my throat again. Which <coughs> we'll come to in a moment. Uh, and there are 12 of them. We'll come to that bit in a moment. Although it's put in a very matter-of-fact way, this is quite a radical thing for Jesus to do at this point. Uh, and I'll try and explain that as we go along. They're apostles. He names them apostles. And the word, so that's the, the, that's the noun, apostle. There's a verb, to apostle. And that is the word to send, which is in the next part of the sentence that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. He called them apostles and he apostled them to preach. He sent them out to preach. And in doing so, he gave them authority which was very much akin to his authority. Do you notice that he gave them authority to drive out demons? He sent them out to preach and gave them authority to, to kick out the demons. <coughs> might be worth noting that in Hebrew culture there was something called a shaliah. And a shaliah was somebody that you could appoint and send to do stuff for you. Uh, uh, your legal representative. Uh, he couldn't do absolutely everything that you wanted. For example, if you were married 
he wouldn't be married to your wife as well. It's not quite as close an identity as that. But there's many things he could do. So the example of, now let me just see, I didn't look it up. So this is from memory. Who sent a servant to get a wife for his son? Was it Jacob? Was it Isaac? Yeah, so who sent Okay, so he sends somebody off. Was it, Ab- was it Abraham's? Wish I'd looked this up beforehand. Anyway, he, he goes off and he's able to contract a marriage for his master's son. He has the legal authority to do that. You know, so whoever it was would have given him the shaliach, his credit card, and said, you know, whatever you need to spend, you've got, you're an authorized signature on this. Here's the PIN number. Don't tell everybody else, though. And so this, this person gets sent out. It's said, a man shaliach is as himself. So if you meet the shaliach, you meet his master. Now, as I say, that's within limits. It isn't a total equivalence. But within those limits, he was able to do, you know, if he, if he said it, his master had said it. If he arranged it, it's as if his master had arranged it. And I think we've got the background for that applying to this because Jesus takes these 12 and he gives them pretty much his authority. They go out to preach. They have authority to cast out demons. And this, these, this group of people becomes a key group of people which we'll see. Uh, let me try and explain a little bit more about it. So other things that are going on here is naming. So this is another aspect of Jesus' uh, action. He names them apostles, verse 14. He also, who else does he name? So we've got to verse 16. These are the 12 he made. Simon, for he names him, doesn't he? He gives him the name Peter. So it's like as if I was to say, Ben, your name's Algernon now, okay. And uh, Tim, you're going to be called Paul. <laughs> but Jesus, it, it, I mean, it's not a completely random name because Peter, Petros, means rock. So, rocky, okay. Um, the rock. It, Jesus sort of takes it upon himself to name Simon something, Peter. And he also gives a name to James and his brother John. He gives them the name Boanerges. That seems to be Aramaic. You turn it into Greek, you get sons of thunder, and then you translate it into English. Uh, Are they called that because they're such fiery characters? Are they the sort of Irish of that that, uh, uh, culture? You know, the ones that, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, But Jesus sees something about these men and he names them. So Jesus is taking the initiative in a number of ways. And the 12, it says of them in verse 14, he particularly wants them to be with him. So why to be with him? Well, because he's going to spend a lot of time with these chaps and he's going to teach them and he's going to be very patient with them and he's going to teach them again and he's going to say to them at some point later, are you so dull 
are you so stupid that I've taught you this and you still don't understand? And he's going to say to them, I've been giving you special tutorial lessons and you're surprised about the sandwiches. And they were talking about sandwiches because, no, sorry, they were, they were amazed because they hadn't understood about the loaves. You know, all these sorts of things that Jesus is teaching them. Um, he teaches to the outsiders in parables, to everybody on the inside, to them is given the secret of the kingdom. And this is his core group. They're going to learn from his lips, and they're, because they're with him, they're going to learn from his life. And I want to say, I think he's patient with these guys too. You know, he's patient with the vast pushing, pushing, shoving throng. But he's also patient with this little group that he gives himself to. Uh, they are, in many ways, just as spiritually thick as the other lot, uh, like us. But why 12? I didn't answer that to the beginning. Why 12? What, we know the answer, but might as well ask you. Um, why 12? Is this, why not 14? Or um, why 12? What's special about 12? It's the number of? The tribes, yes. The number of tribes in the old Israel. Uh, Israel was actually a person. He had 12 sons. 12 tribes, and that's the, the community of Israel. And Jesus says, I've been watching things develop. I've been sensing the way things are going. And now's the moment for me to start my 12. And this isn't going to be 12 sons or 12 tribes. It's going to be you guys and you and you and you and you. You're my 12, but you are the beginning of my new community. And it might seem a relatively small step, but if you think what that implies, so if you imagine, <clears throat> if Caroline Lucas were to say, uh, I'm hiring a building, I'm gonna put uh, benches down this side and benches down this side, I'm gonna have a speaker's rostrum in the middle, we're going to vote that way and that way and uh, so and you, you, you and you are going to sit in these benches and you think, hang on, what are you doing? And she said, I'm making a new Houses of Parliament. I'm going to be in charge and have a new Houses of Parliament, you can be my party, you can be the opposition, we're going to vote on things. And you say, hang on a minute, you've gone crazy, we've got the Houses of Parliament, they're doing it all up there in Westminster. And she says, it's all finished up there. This is where it's all taking place now. You'd think, wow. Wasn't really expecting that. But this is what Jesus is doing, isn't he? He's saying, we've, got the, we've had the 12 tribes and now I've got my 12. And it's you. And I'm going to grow it all from, from this basis. <clears throat> so let me make a couple of comments on that. Uh, in fact, the 12, the apostolic group, are actually our link with Jesus. Jesus never actually wrote down a book. 
we don't have access to Jesus' teachings apart from the apostolic record. So, in effect, Jesus said to his apostles, I'm training you, and when I'm gone, if people want to know what I said and want to know the depth and riches and certainty of it, they're going to come to have to come to you. And that's where we get the gospel. And if the gospel isn't from the apostles, it isn't the gospel. And whatever is from the apostles is the gospel. Just take a look. There's any number. Well, there's, there are a number of references. But what about this one? Two Peter. Chapter 1, verse 16. So this is Peter, elderly Peter, looking back, conscious that his life is coming to an end. And he says, what I want you to do is to remember what we told you. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. <coughs> oh, sorry, let's go back to... Um, Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We're the ones who saw, we're the ones who tell. We've told you, and it's vitally important that you hang on to what we told you. And you have a similar thing in 1 John 1. Where John, the one of the sons of thunder... <coughs> writes down about his role in seeing, being an eyewitness and ear witness and passing on and the only access we have to his blessing is to listen and believe what he says so 1 John 1 that which was from the beginning which we have heard we have seen with our eyes we have looked at our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life the life appeared we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us so that you can have the experience that we have and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ we write this to make our joy complete so these twelve are our link with Jesus and that's why uh, the New Testament is so important because that's the book that they wrote. They either wrote it as the 12 or had their approval. So it's the apostolic gospel. So one application of this is that we should read our Bibles. So that's what they said. And the second thing that I thought was appropriate that 12 is the core of the new Jesus community. And the new Jesus community grows not by having children and grandchildren like the old community did, but it grows by people coming to faith. And 
this community is actually vitally important. Now, the Roman Catholics have a doctrine of the church which say you can't be saved outside the church. You can't be saved outside the Roman Catholic Church. And they've got a Latin word for it, um, which I can't remember. Um, might be nulla, sal nulla salutis extra ecclesiam or something like that. No salvation outside the church. Uh, now, it's quite wrong to say there's no salvation outside the Roman Catholic Church, but it is true to say outside the Church of Jesus Christ, outside is no salvation. We have to belong to this community. There's no salvation outside it. Please look at Acts chapter 2, verse 40. <coughs> Excuse me. This is on the day of Pentecost, right back in the church's beginning days. Can you give us a page number? 1094. 1094. Acts chapter 2. And on that day, Peter, people say to Peter, well, you know, we got it so wrong about Jesus, extraordinarily wrong, terribly wrong. What on earth can we do to be saved? And Peter says, yeah, you're, the whole group of you, Jews and Gentiles, you're all in on this. You need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for Jews and Gentiles alike, for all whom the Lord our God can will call and with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them save yourselves from this corrupt generation in other words don't any longer be part of this community this community which doesn't believe in Jesus and those who accepted his word were baptized so they took the sign of entering a new community and 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, notice that is what it's saying. It's saying that they left one community, say, these are my people, this is my home, this is where I belong, to join the community of whom the 12 apostles are the foundational members, and they joined the new community, and that's what they did. They were added to that number. So let me put that as a thought. Which community would you say you belong to? Where would you say, these are my people, this is where I belong? There we are, you see, that's, uh, that's the answer. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, in a moment we'll sing. Uh, sometimes we have the opportunity for questions or observations. So if there are, are there any questions or observations yet? Yes.
yes, that's a very helpful point. Thank you. That adds certainty, doesn't it? So Luke says, I've investigated from the beginning, and he says, he says, so he gets multiple witnesses, writes it down, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So it does add certainty. We're not just depending on one person who could turn out to be a crank. We've got multiple witnesses, and they all agree. And this is all, yeah, yeah. Lots of people. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, I'm not an expert in what other people have done, but, but, uh, but, that's, yeah. It makes sense, doesn't it? So to what Julia is saying is that uh, in many other religions, you've got the one person saying, this is what I've dreamed or this is what God's told me. But in Christianity, we have multiple witnesses who saw, heard, and have written it down, and we can be more certain from what, what they're saying. I'm just repeating that for the, for the recording. Any other questions or observations? Yeah. Yes. I was referring to, uh, well, let's say I wasn't referring to people who are just on our membership list because, for example, in our, in our church here, the membership list is for people who are particularly committed to this church as their church, and we most certainly believe that there are Christians who are not committed to our church and they may well be attending our church, but they're not necessarily committed to it. So we would say that the, the real church, as Jesus sees it, is, is far wider than the people who've signed up to something. So uh, I, I think this, the, it, the, the, the church, as Jesus sees, shouldn't be hugely different from the people who the general public can see as being people who say, we're Christians, we're living the Christian life, and to live the Christian life, we're loving other people, and these are the people that we're 
bound up with an, a loving. So the two, the two thoughts shouldn't be hugely different. I know that they are, they're not exactly the same, but they shouldn't be hugely different. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Right. Let's, let's sing a song to close with.